My name is Jeff Rechtenwald. I'm on the elder team here. And it's my privilege um, to open God's Word with you this morning. This morning we're going to be covering the concept of God's will. Uh, as the Lord's Prayer says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Many times when we stop, talk about God's will, we often reference God's will in relationship to our lives. So we say, God's will for my life. What is God's will for my life? It's a question we hear fairly often, right? Usually that relates to, should I make this career choice? Should I marry this person? How do I think about this big decision? And those are great, but the problem with doing that is that very often we take God's will and we refocus it away from God and focus it on ourselves. And when we do that, I would argue this morning that we leave ourselves open to disappointment because God won't disappoint but I will. And when I take God's will and I focus it on myself, I'm going to be surprised by things that happen in life. And so I want to start off this morning with a big idea, and hopefully by the end of the sermon, I've explained what it means. We are on God's team, not the other way around. God is not on our team. Now that doesn't mean that God isn't for us, but it's a perspective in terms of how we think about God's will for our lives and how we think about our relationship with God. I'm going to anchor our discussion this morning in two books of the Bible, Numbers and Joshua. And uh, they're, they're great books. In Numbers, towards the end of Numbers, we're just at the point where Israel is entering the Promised Land, right? So they're over on the east side of the Jordan. They haven't crossed over yet. And then Joshua, the book of Joshua, takes us into the Promised Land. And so there are kind of two sides of getting ready to go in and do what God wants Israel to do. I personally love this section of Scripture because in this section of Scripture, God speaks blessings and promises to Israel. But also, He gives warnings and He gives expectations. God shows His power to the Israelites once again but from here on out, he's expecting them to train up the next generation and to help that generation remember this heritage, to pass these things on. So Israel's approaching the promised land, and that they are knowing the path, they know that they're on the path that God has sent for him, them. They are in God's will, if we want to phrase it that way. But they also know this is going to be a challenging process. So this is the first point that I would like to bring up this morning. And that is that being in God's will is an active process. It's not a passive process. The Israelites had to gird themselves for battle, prepare their minds, and go out and expect that God would work through them. The specifics of what they should do were sometimes handed to them, but sometimes not. Sometimes it was the overarching idea, like go out and make disciples, that guided their actions. It's a partnership. It's not active, or it's not passive, it's active. And this is how God works. It's kind of this crazy thing, right? God works in partnership with humans. He does so through our study of the Bible, through prayer, through evangelism, through our sanctification, our fighting of sin. Being in God's will, doing what God wants us to do, is a proactive thing. So that's point number one. Being in God's will, doing God's will, is something that we do, not something that happens to us. Okay, so I want to get back to numbers. We're going to spend a, a decent amount of time in, in numbers, and so I'm going to let that be our, our story for the morning. 
We're going into the promised land. We know God's with us. But all those great things in Egypt were stories. We weren't there when God rescued us from Egypt. Or at least, it's a long time ago. And so God is going to renew the faith of the people in his providence. And they've already seen this a little bit as they approach the promised land. They've had some battles, and they've seen God work miracles as they've overcome crazy odds. But what they haven't seen is something that's not physical. They haven't seen the spiritual attack side, right? They've had physical opposition, but what about spiritual opposition when they enter the promised land? So we're going to spend a decent amount of time in Numbers 22. We're going to read the whole chapter. And as I do that, I want you to be thinking through yourself in the place of Israel. What are your expectations of what God should be doing in each scene? Right? You're about to do something really big. You're going to enter the promised land. What do you think God should do in this passage? If God doesn't do what I think he should do, how do I respond? How do I think about that? All right, let's go ahead. Numbers 22. We haven't done this in a while. What page is it on? Anyone? 130. Oh, that was fast. We were ready to go. All right, Numbers 22. This is the story of Balaam. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all Israel saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people. Because there were many, Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammar to call to him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse these people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I'll be able to defeat them and drive them for the land, for I know that he who you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. All right, so remember what you're supposed to be doing. You're pretending you're an Israelite, hearing this story for the first time, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, we've overcome some physical battles. This is something a little different. What's God going to do here? So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees of divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, lodge here for the night, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent, his, uh, sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. 
So the princes of Moab rose and went with Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Again, what are you supposed to be doing? You're the Israelites. This is great, right? God quashes this right at the beginning. We're done. Hey, I'm liking this story. But there's more to the chapter. Once again, Balak sent princes, more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me. I will surely do you great honor. Whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants, Though Balak give me his house full of silver and gold, wink, wink, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please, stay here tonight, that I might know more of what the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said, If the men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. All right, Israel. Wait, what? Why are you doing this? God, this person wants to curse us. Their intent is to bring us down. And you're letting them go? God, what are you doing here? We don't, we don't understand. But God's anger, continuing in 22, was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary. Now, he was riding on a donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn in its hand. Okay, we're liking this part. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey and turned her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And, the, and when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot. So he struck her again. This is good, right? A little bit of comic relief as, as God is getting ready to strike down this guy, which is what God should do if I'm thinking as an Israelite. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow way, where there was no way to turn either to the right or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you, that you have struck me these three times? I don't know how a donkey talks, so I'm just going to go with that. And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. And I wish I had a sword in my hand, and then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, uh, Am I not your donkey, on which you've ridden all your life to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. We'll come back to that. And then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse or evil before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I'll turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word 
that I tell you. And Balaam went with the princes of Balak. All right. That's kind of a weird passage. There's a lot of things going on there. So we like to take a little bit, but right now we're thinking we're Israelites, right? Why is God letting Balaam go? What in the world is God doing? Now, I'm going to pause and say there's a few other things that stand out, and I know you're asking these questions. So uh, maybe you're thinking to yourself, who is this Balaam guy? Not only that, but he seems like some kind of strange pagan diviner, but he knows who God is. That's weird. And God actually meets him. Look at the words in verse 9 and 20. God goes out and meets Balaam. God came to Balaam. This isn't the language of a vision. It's the language of a visit. This is like when God comes physically to Abraham right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why in the world would God visit this guy? Or maybe you're thinking the other one. What's up with God in this passage? Go, don't go. I'm going to kill him. No, I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to let the donkey save him. Is God really this fickle? Uh, We've got a word for this, right? Uh, the, The fancy word, immutability, right? God is unchanging, right? We talk about the fact that God never changes. What's going on in this passage? God seems to be changing his mind every few seconds. And if I'm Israel, that's not a good thing. Or third, and this probably should have been your first question, what's up with the talking donkey? I mean, okay, I'm going to pause for a second and say, I'm actually okay with the donkey talking. I believe in miracles. I believe that God can do whatever he wants in creation. So donkey talking, axe heads floating, walking on water, healing people. I'm actually okay with all of those. What I'm not okay with is Balak's response, right? Verse 19 should have been, Mr. Donkey, you can talk. Right? That should have been what was there. But it wasn't. And not only that, but the donkey then has a rational argument. Right? He's like a logician telling Balaam why he shouldn't hit him. What is up with this particular passage? All right. so since you brought them up, we'll go ahead and discuss them. But I want to give you a quick warning. These questions are more questions from a Western mindset than the mindset of the Israelis. And if we go down them too far... I think we'll miss the entire point of the passage. So I'm going to talk about them briefly and then we'll come back to the passage. But I want to make sure that we don't get too distracted because I got distracted on these when I first started reading it. Okay, first question. Why in the world would God visit Balaam in corporal form, in physical form? And as far as the Old Testament goes, this actually isn't that strange. I mean, don't forget that Abraham meets God in physical form. This is often referred to by theologians as a theophany or a pre-incarnation visit of Christ. And we know that throughout the Old Testament, God visits Abraham, Samuel, Gideon, and Joshua, all in physical form. Okay, so God visiting people physically before the Old Testament is written is not uncommon. I shouldn't say not uncommon. It it happens, right? I don't want to say that it happens all the time, but it's, it's something that occurs. Also, what about the fact that he's not an Israelite? Well, we're used to reading about Israel because we read from the Old Testament. But don't forget that Abraham met this guy named Melchizedek. And uh, Job, who wasn't an Israelite, served as a priest for his family. And do you remember um, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro? He was a, a priest at Midian. So there are other people who are offering sacrifices to God, who are aware of God, who are not part of the Israelite family. So 
Actually, it's not that strange that God is doing things in the culture at large rather than just with his chosen people. What's unique about Israel is that God physically dwells with them. And I do want to pause and say, it is interesting that that's a question that comes up because that assumes that we know what God can do and can't do, right? And so we want to make sure that we're not limiting God in this way. God often does things in unexpected ways. So we shouldn't be surprised if he does something and we go, wait, really? Okay, second question. Why does God keep changing his mind? That's a fun one with God's will. I'm going to go with the simple answer, which is he doesn't. Good, all right, let's move on. Um, no, it's a hard question, right? But, but I want to give you a, a quick example of, of one way of processing through this, which is that there are all sorts of passages in the Bible where God is sitting on a throne, the earth is his footstool, the hand of God was upon them, but God is a spirit. So to talk about him in those terms is to anthropomorphize him so that we understand him better. I would argue that the changing of the mind here is kind of a similar thing. It puts what God is doing in terms that we can understand because it relates to us as humans because God is bigger than us. His thoughts are way above us. And so God is unchanging, but he's describing himself in a way that we can understand. In, in a sense, what God is doing here is a metaphor. It's not an exact representation of who he is. All right, so we, we got two out of the way. Let's hit the third one. Why doesn't Balaam appear to be surprised by the talking donkey? This actually gets us more in the direction we should be going. I think it says a lot about the Balaam himself. His response to the donkey isn't surprised because Balaam is angry. He's frustrated. He's injured. He looks like a fool. But more importantly, Balaam's been tempted. He's been offered pretty much, here's a blank check, write whatever you want on it. And this donkey is getting in his way. The donkey is an obstacle. He doesn't realize the donkey's about to save his life. Balaam's anger is so strong that he's unable to see what God is doing. Remember, this is a pagan diviner. He should be able to have a little more foresight, be a little more uh, able to see these things coming. But he's so blinded by his anger that he doesn't notice the strangeness of a talking donkey. Now, I don't know about you, but that would never happen to me. Okay, never mind. I hate to admit it, but very often my own wants and my own desires, things that I want, cloud my ability to see what God is doing. And if something doesn't go the way that I think it should go, Right? Remember, if I think I'm leading the charge, I'm doing God's will, if it doesn't go the way I think it should go, it, it becomes a frustration rather than viewed as a blessing. When God isn't doing what I want, sometimes that frustration stops me from seeing what he is really doing. All right, back to Balaam. As God's redirection gets stronger and stronger, Balaam's desire causes his anger and frustration to build and to build until he can't see what God is doing. But even then, look at his question, right? Even when the angel shows up and Balaam finally goes, oh wait, there's something more going on. God's here. What's Balaam's question? He should just say, okay, angel of the Lord, I'm turning back and going home. Instead he goes, well, if you really don't want me to go, I won't go. But he really wants to go. Even though there's an angel standing there with a sword. 
He presses the issue and God allows him to continue. And Israel says, wait, why are you letting this person come? All right, so I'd like to draw from this section our second point. The first point was that following God is an active process. It's something that we have to be proactive with. Our second point is that we shouldn't let our desires get in the way of seeing what God is doing. Because very often that's what happens. The third point is that God's will can't be thwarted. What a great word, thwarted. God's will cannot be thwarted. Remember, who's the audience in the passage? It's Israel. An Israel that is about to enter the promised land or the next generation that's hearing what God did. They've faced military challenges and God has clearly given them victory. But this is a spiritual challenge. Is it possible, thinks Israel, that Balaam could actually curse them? Is there a way that Balaam, the most renowned diviner of the area, can actually undermine their relationship with God and cause God to abandon them so that they could be defeated? The current generation of Israel needs to know that the gods of Canaan are no match for Yahweh. Just like the last generation of Israel needed to know that the gods of Egypt were no match for Yahweh. Just like this generation needs to know that the spirit of the age and the confusion and all of the things of this culture are no match for Yahweh. We know that there is nothing that can happen that can thwart God's plan. So let's keep reading and look for that. I'm going to continue in verse 41. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal, which is a hill, a mountain, And from there he saw a fraction of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam said. The double B's words are always confusing to me. And Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to me, and whatever he shows me I will tell you. And he went to a bare height, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged seven altars, and offered on each altar a ram and a bull. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering, and Balaam took up his discourse. And if you read the next section, you will see that instead of cursing Israel, Balaam does exactly the opposite. He blesses Israel. And in verse 11, Balak says to Balaam, what have you done? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So let's continue to observe a little bit what Balaam is doing. You know, on the surface, he seems like actually a pretty good guy, right? If you just read verses 11 and 12, I can only do what God lets me do, right? He clearly acknowledges that God's in control, but don't confuse Balaam with a follower of God. As a matter of fact, look very carefully at the details of the passage. What does Balaam do? Balaam's taken to a mountain. In ancient times, mountains were places where you went up to ask gods for favors because you were closer to a god and maybe you could offer them something and 
they would grant you favors. Maybe you could control them in that way. Balaam instructs Balak to build seven altars and sacrifice seven rams and seven bulls. What Balaam is doing here is he's seeking to control God. He thinks he's got a ritual and he can use that ritual to convince God to allow him to do what he wants to do or to curry God's favor. He knows he needs to curse Israel in order to get his money. And even after the donkey incident, he thinks he can still turn this around. We read throughout the Old Testament that the high places are places to kind of get these favors. And that's what he's doing. He is using a pagan ritual in an attempt to get God to change his mind. It doesn't work. Thank goodness. But you know, there is also a Christian version of this. And I have to admit, uh, more times than not as a high schooler, fairly often in college, and even now it sneaks up on me a little bit, I can fall into this type of thinking. I see that God isn't giving me something I want. Or he's not doing what I think his will for me should be. And I think maybe I need to pray harder. Or, or I need to read my Bible more or be engaged in quiet time or do something, right? I think I can manipulate God so that his will is what I want rather than seeking his will. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible tells us in the parable of the persistent widow that we should be persistent and knock in prayer. That's not what I'm talking about. But prayer is a two-way conversation, right? So prayer also requires us to take a time and listen to what God is saying. I want to be clear for a minute, though, especially to, to kind of the youth, the high schoolers and um, college-age students, about what I mean by listening to God. Because a lot of times we use that phrase and we don't define what it means. Um, I, what I don't mean is that I'm going to hear a voice or think a thought, although God can work in that way. Very often I think that listening to God means being reminded of a scripture passage that deals with the situation I'm in. Or or possibly carefully observing what God is doing around you. Listening to God can also involve seeking the wisdom of older people in the church who, through practice, have learned to discern how God is moving and learned to discern what God is doing and can speak into your life and help you learn those skills as well. Finding God's will is much easier in community. Let's go back to Balaam. As we see in the passage, God's attempt to, or Balaam's attempt to ritual the answer that he wants doesn't work. So Balaam gives up. Okay, Balaam is not one to give up. We've learned that already. As a matter of fact, Balaam goes to two more mountains, builds seven altars on each mountain, and on each mountain offers seven rams and seven bulls, this, per, this guy is nothing but persistent. And twice, God appears to Balaam. Once, Balaam doesn't even bother to go see what God's going to say because he's got this figured out that God's not going to let him do it. But in that case, he still blesses Israel. So to any Israelite hearing this story, it is clear that God prevailed and that God prevails on behalf of the people of Israel. If Israel's walking into the promised land worried about spiritual threats, they don't need to worry about. God has that under control. 
But the way that God showed that to them was completely unexpected. I mean, I want God to do stuff my way very often. God should have just stopped Balaam at the house. Why did he bother letting Balaam even get out the door? Not only that, but there were three or four times on the road God could have struck down Balaam. And I'm thinking, yes, why didn't God do that? God had something bigger in store. God was doing something else. And even though I didn't understand what was happening at the time, by the time it all comes around, God's very clear in what he's doing. God, instead of stopping Balaam, chose to make an example of him and to show his people that he's the Most High God. Let me read a, a brief snippet from Balaam's second prophecy to give you an idea of how clear God was on this. In chapter 23, verse 23, in the middle of Balaam's oracle, he says, There is no enchantment against Jacob and no divination against Israel. And now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel what God has wrought. What an encouragement to the people of Israel. All right, so let's recap. Our first point was that being in God's will is an active process. We see this in the fact that Israel has to be proactive in going into the promised land. The second point was that we shouldn't let our desires get in the way of seeing God's will. We see that as Balaam's continually warned, but pursuing his path in spite of God's warning. Our third point was that Balaam, or that God's will can't be thwarted. And we see this in Balaam's attempt to curse Israel, only resulting in God's blessing. The fourth point that we also see from this passage is that God's will is often unexpected. God did a pile of things in that passage that at each point I can feel myself saying, no, that's not the right choice. But of course, remember what I said earlier? I'm not the one leading this team. I'm not the one that has the right idea on how this should go forward. God is. And the faster I reset my mind to think that way, the easier it is and the less frustrated I get with the process. All right, that's great. We've had a good lesson on God's will. The Israelites get to see God thwart someone who sought to do them harm. Time to wrap up and get lunch. Except for one thing. You see, I like God's will when the outcome is what I want. I like God's will when he does what I expect. And you know, I like God's will when my enemies suffer. You know what I don't like? Well, I don't like it when the outcome is not what I desire. I don't like it when he does things I don't expect. And I really don't like it when God's will involves me suffering. But what I've learned in life is that God often does the unexpected. And sometimes I'll never know why. And you know what? That's okay. It's taken me a long time to get there, but that's okay. I've learned that when something unexpected happens, instead of becoming angry like Balaam, I should instead become more observant and look at what God is doing and follow him. Because remember what we saw in Isaiah. God's thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And rather than leading us to frustration, in Isaiah that leads the writer to joy. All right, let me give you, uh, end with kind of an example. When I was in grad school, I chose to live in college housing, which meant I had a roommate. And uh, my roommate, I'll call him Ben, 
uh, was a Chinese guy with a fabulous British accent because he grew up in South Africa. That threw me off for about the first week. Um, but Ben was very opposed to God and Christianity in general. Over many months of very careful conversations, and he had some tough questions, we talked about God. And so I was excited several months later when he joined a Chinese church. And so it shouldn't have surprised me when Ben came back to the apartment one night and announced, I'm getting baptized. And I immediately said, why would you do that? What did I do? What was I thinking? Why in the world would I say that? Have I just ruined several months of trying to be careful and thoughtful in my conversations with Ben? He didn't get baptized. And I thought, what have I done? But it turns out that God was bypassing my best efforts and doing something else. You see, Ben had to resolve a question before giving his life to Christ. More than anyone else I ever knew, Ben needed to ask the question of whether he was going to follow God's will or do what he wanted to do. And he knew that that meant giving up on some dreams that he had. And he had to wrestle with the question, am I actually willing to give up on these things? And I know a lot of Christians wrestle with that after they come to Christ. They kind of come to the realization that God has, you know, we are servants of God, like Rick said earlier. Ben dealt with it before he came to Christ, and he really wrestled through it. Will I follow God's will for my life? And, you know, six months later, Ben was baptized. And a month before, he had surrendered his will to God's will, fully aware of what that meant and that it would mean giving up on some dreams. And it was at that moment that I became aware that I was more like the donkey in Balaam's story, speaking something that God needed to be said in spite of myself rather than because of myself. God worked through me in spite of what I was seeking to do. The story is only an okay example, right? Because in this story, there's clear evidence that God's hand is at work. It's kind of obvious. But other experiences in my life aren't so clean, and I don't get the end of the story. And so I have to trust, based on that prior experience, that God is working. And I have to make sure that my desires don't get in the way of listening. As I wrap up um, our time together this morning, I'll ask the uh, elders and the worship team to come forward. I'd like to wrap it up with a slightly different discussion from Joshua as Israel enters the promised land. This time, we've got Joshua facing down the city of Jericho. We're not on the east side of the river, we're on the west side of the river. And if you flip over to Joshua 5, 13 through 15, you get another weird passage. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and behold, and looked, and a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Sorry, I like passages with swords. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? So Joshua encounters God. He's facing down a walled city. He's, Moses is dead. Joshua is leading the Israelites. What should God say to him? Well, I hope that God would encourage him. Say, hey, yeah, you're doing what I think you should be doing. Keep going. God doesn't say that. Instead, God says something 
that kind of throws me for a loop every time I read it. And God said, or he said, no. I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped, saying, what does my Lord say to his servant? God comes to Joshua. Joshua knows that he is in God's will, doing what God has told him. And God's message to Joshua is a reminder, I'm not on your team. You're on my team. And so when God comes to Joshua and says, hey, I'm going to ask you to take down a walled city with some trumpets, Joshua doesn't hesitate because he knows that God is doing what God is going to do. And he's seen God act and trusts God to do this. Joshua's all in. He doesn't question when God throws him a curveball and does something that Joshua doesn't think he should do because he's learned to trust God. You know, there's another time in history when God did something totally unexpected. As we celebrate the Lord's table, we remember that Jesus died on a cross to satisfy God's wrath. I mean, it was unexpected, right? Do you remember Peter's response to this? No, no, that's not going to happen. Jesus, don't keep talking about these things, right? Peter does what I do sometimes. He just, the words come out before they really should. But what was Jesus' response? Jesus' response is, in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. And so as we prepare to take the bread and cup, please spend a few minutes reflecting on Jesus' submission to God. And then we'll enter into communion.